Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is my colleague, Stephen Malanga. He's City Journal's senior editor and a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He writes about urban economies, business communities, public policy, and much more. His work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Cranes, New York Times, New York Post, in addition, of course, to CJ. Today, we're going to be discussing his recent City Journal work on urban retail flight and other matters, which you know has been generating a lot of attention. So, Steve, as always, thanks for coming on 10 Blocks. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. New York City has long been considered one of the world's greatest places for shopping. Uh, Indeed, tourists come here to shop. Yet many of its local communities and neighborhoods have lacked basic amenities like supermarkets or drugstores. During the 70s and 80s, crime and disorder drove thousands of businesses from the city. That left residents of many of these places with no immediate access to basic retailing. Harlem, for instance, didn't have a single large chain supermarket for more than two decades. This created what some people have called retail deserts uh, for local residents. But then that changed a lot, right, in, in the 90s and 2000s. These, a lot of these retail deserts were kind of eliminated. Yeah, essentially what happened was that, um, first of all, the decline in crime and an, uh, a reestablishment of social order in many neighborhood communities. And and again, when, when people talk about New York as a retailing mecca, they're typically talking about Madison Avenue or Fifth Avenue. Now, what we're talking about, for instance, is the other boroughs. We're talking about um, uh, you know, uh, communities in like Jamaica in Queens, Astoria in Queens, Bushwick in, um, in Brooklyn. And many of these had seen uh, a, a, a flight of retailers, in some cases during the uh, riots and, and arson uh, 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 sprees, if you will, of the uh, 70s, uh, the storefronts had just been burned out. Whole areas of Bushwick or the South Bronx have been uh, burned out. Howard Cosell on the uh, on the World Series broadcast uh, famously in the 70s, looking out into the distance and seeing fires and saying, you know, the South Bronx is burning. Um, that really left a lot of communities without basic services. And um, uh, one survey, a poll of consumers that we did in the, in the um, late 1980s when I was at Crane's New York Business found that more than half of um, shoppers in the city were leaving the city at least once a month to shop at stores that weren't available in the city. And there were estimates of essentially billions of dollars of uh, uh, personal income of, of shoppers in the city leaving the city to shop because people couldn't find these stores for a variety of reasons, including bad zoning regulations and other and other kind of uh, you know uh, uh, you know red tape paperwork, but also simply because many of these neighborhoods um, were were not hospitable, if you will. But with the reestablishment of social order uh, in neighborhoods, uh, re- the retailers followed, and there was a tremendous, tremendous burst of retail activity in the city. One of the best ways of um, Looking at that is the city added about like 130,000 retail jobs over 20-year period from the early 90s to uh, 2010 to 2015, really. The peak was about 2015. I mean, that's an ex- a tremendous expansion, an expansion of um, more than 30% in the, in the job market alone, in the opportunity market for people to work 
and and in thousands of and that's expressed in thousands and thousands of stores offering uh, merchandise and and competing against one another. So offering people not just the selection but more competitive prices. That is what this, that is what the the reestablishment of order and the the sharp decline in crime in New York City. Again, violent crime in New York City declined more than eighty percent more than 80% from the early 90s through to the mid-2000s. Uh, mid this is really one of the most remarkable policy-driven shifts ever recorded, I would say. And it, it brought enormous benefits, obviously, to the city and to its residents, especially in some of these, these neighborhoods that had uh, previously been underserved. Unfortunately, you know, New York is now experiencing again, as you've written, a period of retail contraction, I guess you, you could call it. Um, a recent census shows that the city has lost nearly 700 outlets run by national chains since early 2020. And a particularly troubling trend, you note, is the decline of drugstores, city drugstores, whose numbers have shrunk by more than 100 since the beginning of the pandemic. Now, some of this, you know, is, is related to the COVID shutdowns. Um, you know, some, some population shifts that have gone on, um, you know, and, and then the George Floyd area unrest that occurred, um, you know, but, but if we look across the country, many cities have regained and surpassed their pre-pandemic retail employment numbers. So what, you know, what is really behind this continuing urban retail flight over the last few years in the city? And what can be done to turn it around? Well, again, it's a double dose, first of all, of, as you say, pandemic lockdowns, which uh, made the city uh, unprofitable for many of these places. And many of them just, you know, folded up and disappeared or, you know, retailers had to downsize. Um, and, 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 and it was more extreme in New York than in many other places. And that's one of the reasons uh, why we saw this devastation um, uh, during the pandemic of the economic fabric of a lot of communities. I mean, there were people like, for instance, the um, president of uh, Arc Restaurants, Michael Weinstein, very, very famous, you know, New York City restaurant group, who whose uh, restaurants were basically essentially closed for long periods in New York City. Meanwhile, his restaurants in Florida were operating, and uh, he put all his emphasis down in Florida. And he says, "I can't do business in New York." So that kind of extreme COVID lockdowns had an economic cost. Just as the pandemic is ending, however, we have this new kind of phenomenon uh, based on the social disorder of rising retail theft, much of it organized in nature, or it's now called, you know, organized retail crime. These are kind of a, even the government recognizes this phenomenon. And around the country, uh, organized retail crime has more than doubled in five years. Um, you have retailers, big retailers, Target, um, uh, Best Buy, Walmart. Uh, who have to report, you know, their financials because they're publicly held companies, say, saying, you know, we're we're going to, you know, uh, organized retail crime is going to cost us five hundred million dollars this year nationwide. Things like that. They are closing stores in some places in response to this, um, and particularly in big cities. New York is not the only city. Chicago, certainly Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, um, uh, Boston. Uh, We've seen this in New York City, and and those numbers that you you know you quoted nearly nearly seven hundred. It's a result of this double whammy. The um, 
the head of um, of the drugstores, the CEO of drugstores at Rite Aid, which per bought up, you know, Dwayne Reed uh, a while ago, which is a very well-known New York City drugstore chain, essentially said at a meeting with some financial analysts, um, there, there, there's there's no way to control retail crime in New York City, um, uh, and so it's gotten it's gotten to the point where it's a big loss, and so you know, so we see all these places closing, and what's starting to emerge is a um, uh, a repeat of what, of the so-called retail deserts, or in the case of supermarkets, food deserts. I, I talked about more than 100 drugstores closing. You know, Nicole Jelinas wrote a piece about in, Ty, in, in the area off Times Square where she lives. You know, two of the three chain drugstores have closed. So, so you know, <laughs> we've cut by two-thirds the availability of, uh, you know, of um, uh, 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 the competition in that area. Uh, there are supermarkets too, uh, 10 key supermarkets. There are small supermarkets around the city. 10 of them have closed. In some communities in Queens, the people are saying, you know, the, since that, since those supermarkets closed, we're now without a supermarket in our community. So we're seeing the return of what's called food deserts or retail deserts. General merchandise stores too, the dollar stores, the, the low cost of stores, which serve a lot of uh, urban communities with, with good prices. Um, there, there, there's been like a dozen of those that have closed in the city. Um, so we are going backwards in time, and that's reflected in the job numbers. We are still uh, tens of thousands of jobs, uh, retail jobs, below the pre-pandemic levels. And again, you mentioned cities that are recovering, uh, uh, Dallas, Austin, Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, Charlotte, places like that, uh, uh, Tennessee, um, uh, um uh, Memphis. These places have all recovered completely their retail jobs and, and are moving forward. But these are places that one, number one, had fewer lockdowns. The lockdowns lasted for few, long, uh, shorter periods of time. They've also had less retail crime. And part of that is a function of government policy, because here in New York, we have uh, loosened the rules uh, 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 against prosecuting people for retail crime. Uh, we've put people back on the street through bail reforms so that repeat offenders don't really pay a high price. And one security expert has said in, in places like New York City, retail crime has become a low risk, high, re high reward uh, crime. And we're, this is the fruits of that we're now seeing. Yeah, it's not a good sign at all. And it really underscores the need uh, for a return to sensible policing policies, public order policies, uh, so retail can function properly. And so it's, it's, uh, it's not a, you know, it's not a great trend, obviously. Um, you, you wrote an essay for our summer issue about another, uh, kind of urban development, which involves anti-gentrification activists and their efforts to stop development in cities across the country. I guess these two things could, in fact, work in tandem. The essay was called Anti-Gentrifiers uh, Gone Wild, and that really captures the spirit of what's going on because these activists are claiming that gentrification, you know, which you describe as quite just simply the, the transformation of neighborhoods as higher-income residents uh, move in, uh, you know, they're, they're contending that this displaces low-income and minority residents uh, who've built their lives in these areas, so it's fundamentally unjust and, and racist. Uh, but you write that the 
this kind of development actually benefits lower income communities uh, and is in fact essential to other developments like bringing down nationwide home prices, um, you know, which, which have more than doubled over the past decade. So uh, maybe just sketch out why you think gentrification uh, is, is actually a good thing and how does it benefit both newcomers and established residents? So I mentioned that a little while ago, Bushwick in Brooklyn, and, and Bushwick was a place that, that you know, lost its, it used to have a very thriving uh, commercial street with lots of really good local stores. And then there were the riots and, and, um, and arson and looting uh, in, uh, in the 70s. And, at, you know, the, the, um, the, the population collapse there went from about 130,000 to about 90,000. There were all burnt out streets. And, and, th and this situation persisted for decades. Um, then what happened is when crime started going down in the 90s, developers looked around for places to build, to start, you know, uh, investing again in New York City. And they saw Bushwick with all these empty lots and abandoned buildings and a population that was well below um, what it had been. And they started buying and building. And you got young people, especially the people who were what we would call kind of urban explorers, willing to go out now and live in this neighborhood, which for years, you know, you know, very, very few people wanted to to essentially buy into. It was a place where people who f were trapped because they were economically unable to move live and very few other kinds of people live. This this brought an explosion of activity and people started coming in and uh, stores started opening and restaurants started opening and people from Manhattan actually started going out to Bushwick for these kind of edgy new restaurants. In the meantime, what happened was some of the neighborhood um, community activists started, um, uh, you know, essentially demonstrating against this new activity because they said the neighborhood was changing and people were going to be pushed out of the neighborhood. Now, nobody was being pushed out because what happens in poor neighborhoods when they decline like this and they become poor is they suffer from a lack of development. So Bushwick was clearly a place that there was a lot of capacity. There had once been 130,000 people. You know, they had lost almost 40,000 people. So nobody was being pushed out. What was happening, of course, was that the neighborhood was reviving and you were, you were getting uh, all these new stores and all this new opportunity, new jobs. And studies have consistently shown, and not just, you know, studies done, academic studies over the years have shown that this kind of renewal, this kind of, which has been labeled gentrification, because typically when people start coming in, it isn't just other low-income people that come in. When a place revives, by, by almost definition, you know, you get a, a broader variety of people wanting to live there. Studies have consistently shown that, that, that these revivals bring tremendous benefits to the neighborhood and very, very few people get displaced because by definition, places that are underdeveloped have lots of room to develop. That's the reality of gentrification. What's happened uh, in America, in, it happened in Bushwick and it's happening in many, many cities in America now, is that uh, community activists and community groups have begun to protest against any kind of redevelopment that essentially brings in new people because they claim that 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 the community is going to be forced out and there's this now strange mentality 
which essentially says somehow that these communities should get better by never changing, which will never happen, right? That's <laughs> by I very mean, nature. It, <laughs> it, you know, you described some of the, the uh, very striking ways uh, gentrification is now being noticed. Things like um, you know coffee shops or or uh, uh, park refurbishment or improvement, right? Right, or just new restaurants. That's a big one. I mean, restaurants are considered now in in many low income areas to be signs of gentrification to the extent that uh, any restaurant that opens up in a new area that's not designated quote to serve the community unquote whatever that means. Meaning, uh, uh, I mean, I don't know. It's like a like a like a restaurant, like was maybe an, something that hasn't been in that community. Maybe like a new kind of cuisine or something it is is being branded as a sign of gentrification. And so people are boycotting restaurants. They are attacking restaurant critics who start giving good reviews to restaurants in areas that didn't previously have these restaurants. You know, and there's this whole idea that you can somehow stop progress, stop rebuilding, but continue progress. It's, it's a complete contradiction to the point, you know, where um, even in cases where you have, let's say, projects, affordable housing projects, where there's a cap on the rent that people are going to be charged, you have activists that essentially uh, in, in some areas protesting against that because it, it, just by the virtue of the fact that it's new, it's going to change the nature of the community. And one of the ways this is being expressed is in in many cities, there's this lobbying for basically new kinds of what I would call quasi-historical districts. Historical districts are traditionally places where there's actually some kind of, let's say, historic reg, uh, uh, um, uh, architecture. Let's say Greenwich Village, New York. And they get a designation, which means you know, you can't change too much without approval. More and more, you see around the country, uh, uh, people lobbying to have their neighborhoods called basically, you know, conservation districts or historic districts. It's just a way of stopping progress. It's just a way of freezing progress. And you know, the the problem is this is like a fundamental, you know, issue with society in general. If you're not going forward, you're not standing still. You're going backwards, and that is exactly what's happening now. And I think there's a political, a tremendous political undertone to this because many of the advocates who are trying to stop progress, what they are really trying to do is stop change because change means that eventually maybe the politics of the neighborhood changes too. Maybe they lose power because new people are coming in. Doesn't necessarily mean the new people are richer or better, but they might just be different. And so a lot of the underlying, um, I think, um, message here is that there are a lot of people who try to stop urban development because they don't want change because they have power in their neighborhoods. And it's a very, very, at a time when we have, when we have a, 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 a prices, how home prices that are too high and a shortage of housing because of regulations that have essentially made bu building harder and harder. This is the exact opposite of what we will, can be, should be doing. And if this goes on for too long, and if, if political leaders accede to it, What's essentially going to happen is it's only going to make worse what's already uh, a housing shortage and high housing prices are going to go even higher. Yeah, well, thank you, Steve. That's uh, these two things kind of do work together. If you've if you're uh, losing retail and uh, 
preventing any kind of development. <laughs> um, That'll prevent gentrification. <laughs> it, it will really, yes, it, it will prevent gentrification, but at what cost? It's really incredibly misguided. Uh, Steve Malanga, thanks very much. Don't forget to check out Steve's work on the City Journal website. There's a, a mountain of it there. That's www.city-journal.org. Link to his author page in the description. We've been talking about two of his recent pieces, uh, The Return of Urban Retail Deserts and his essay in our summer issue, Anti-Gentrifiers Gone Wild. You can also find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. And as always, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Steve Malanga, always great to have you on, and thanks very much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.